You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. A scripture reading this afternoon is taken from the prophecies of Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 1 to 27, where Jeremiah is busy buying a field. As you'll see, this scripture passage is chosen in connection with our text this afternoon, which is Lord's Day 47, dealing with the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, This is what the Lord says. I am about to hand this city over to the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape out of the hands of the Babylonians, but will certainly be handed over to the king of Babylon, and will speak with him face to face, and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anatos, because as nearest relative it is your right and duty to buy it. Then just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anatos in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anatos from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him seventeen shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Barath, son of Neriah, the son of Mishiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Barak these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Barah, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the father's sins into the laps of their children after them. O great and powerful God, whose name is the Lord Almighty, great are your purposes, and mighty are your deeds. Your eyes are open to all the ways of men. You reward everyone according to his conduct and as his deeds deserve. You perform miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt 
and have continued them to this day, both in Israel and among all mankind, and have gained the renown that is still yours. You brought your people Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror. You gave them this land you had sworn to give their forefathers a land flowing with milk and honey. They came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey you or follow your law. They did not do what you commanded them to do. So you brought all this disaster upon them. See how the siege ramps are built up to take the city. Because of the sword, famine, and plague, the city will be handed over to the Babylonians who are attacking it. What you said has happened, as you now see. And though the city will be handed over to the Babylonians, you, O sovereign Lord, say to me, Buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? I preached to you this afternoon from the Word of our God as the church confesses and summarizes this in Lord's Day 47 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 122. What is the first petition? Answer, hallowed be thy name. That is, grant us, first of all, that we may rightly know thee. And sanctify, glorify, and praise thee in all thy works in which shine forth thy almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. Grant us also that we may so direct our whole life our thoughts, words, and actions, that thy name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, this last week, I spent three days in Southern California. I know it doesn't look like it. My apologies if you were not informed about that. It should have been in the previous issue of Church News. So what was I doing in California, especially in Escondido, specifically? Well, I was there for a meeting of the Theological Education Committees of the United Reformed and Canadian Reformed Churches. The general synods of our respective churches have given a number of us the task to figure out how a merged federation should deal with the training and education of its future pastors and teachers. And that is no easy task. If you've been following our efforts over the last number of years, as well as reading our reports to various synods, then you will know it's been quite a challenge. Indeed, it's been a challenge to the point that I started asking myself, do I really need this? Why am I working on something that appears to be going nowhere? Why spend my time and my energy on a seemingly hopeless task? 
Needless to say, when I traveled south last Monday, I wasn't in the best of moods. And I was not alone in this. This afternoon, we've come to the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, and you may rightly be wondering, what does theological education have to do with the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? What does a trip to Southern California have in common with a trip to Lord's Day 47 of the Heidelberg Catechism? That's a fair question. And there is an answer for a look What is the first petition all about? It's about the Lord. Even more, it's about the name of the Lord. And above all, it's putting the Lord and His great name first and foremost. And you know, if you think of it, that has implications for a lot of different things in this life. It also has implications for my trip. You know, from a purely personal perspective, knowing what had happened in the past and expecting not much to change in the future, I was ready to throw in the towel. But then in the midst of such thoughts, I needed to remind myself that all of this was not really about me and my frustrated feelings at all. It was about the Lord. It was about His will. In other words, you can say it was in one way or another about the hallowing of his name and reputation. And I think both sides realize this. For when we came together in Escondido, it was said by more than one committee member, brothers, I would rather not be here today. I would rather be doing other things. And the only reason I'm here is because the Synod of Shearville or the Synod of Smithers Gave me a job to do. A job that has to do with the unity of the church of Jesus Christ. And ultimately a job that has everything to do with the promotion and the name of our God. And really, is that not what the first petition is all about? Is it not about the name of God? Is it not what we do with that name as well? You see, this petition has all kinds of implications for us today. And above all, it reminds us about priorities, about perspectives, about wills, about seeing straight and doing right. And all of that is surely worthy of exploration this afternoon. And so I'd like to preach to you on the following theme, the first petition, lift up his name. And we're going to see it has much to do with the most wonderful name, a most exciting challenge, and a most glorious outcome. Well, beloved, there are names, and then there is the name. You and I have names, countries and companies have names, cars and trucks have names, streets and towns have names. In short, there are names everywhere. And the only thing about that is that most of the names all around us are not really names. They're just labels. 
They just serve to set people and things apart. They keep us from getting mixed up. We employ them for practical reasons, you might say. But yet that is not all. For from time to time, names have a way of growing and becoming more. They develop into reputations, both good reputations and bad reputations. For example, the name Michelangelo. I don't know about you, but it reminds me of art and great beauty. The name Bach brings us, at least it brings me, into the realm of fine music. The name Newton points to complex mathematics. But there are other names too. Names like Nero, Hitler, Robert Picton. And they do not leave us with fine feelings. They're ugly, brutal, and bloody. You see, names are sometimes more than simply labels. They have to do with reputation. And beloved, if there are names, there is also the name. And I mean, of course, God. Our God has many names, yet I dare say to you this afternoon, none of those names are labels. Indeed, all of his names point ultimately to his reputation. And what is his name and reputation all about? It's wonderful. No, it's not wonderful when you go by the opinions of men and women. It's not wonderful when you listen to the views of fallen mankind. But you know, when you listen to the Spirit of God and what He says, and to what the people of God say, then it is wonderful indeed. Why, it's wonderful beyond imagination. And isn't that what we read about here in Jeremiah 32, for example? There we're told about one of God's names, or is it a dual name, the Lord Almighty, or literally the Lord of the hosts. But yet, we are also told more. We're told about some of the things that this particular name means. Read on, for example, it means, verse 19a, Great are your purposes, and mighty are your deeds. Verse 19b, your eyes are open to all the ways of men. Verse 19c, you reward everyone according to his conduct and his, as his deeds deserve. And verse 20, you perform miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt. You brought your people out of Egypt by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. Verse 21. You gave them this land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 22. Israel did not obey you, so you brought disaster upon them. And I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Beloved, when you take all of those verses, then you start to get a little bit of an inkling what it means that the Lord is the Lord of the heavenly hosts. 
And you get an understanding of just how full and how loaded. Just that one name. What that dual name really is. And you may know as well that Scripture is full of other names too. So many more that are all loaded with meaning and significance. El, Elohim, Eloah, El Shaddai, El Elyon, El Elam, El Roy, El Bessel, Yahweh, Adonai, Ruler, Rock, Holy One, King. Beloved, you take all of those names together. And those names lead you to one great name. A name that describes a person and a reputation that is beyond our human imaginations to capture or conceive or to describe. You know about this God and about His name, the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. I'll give thanks to the Lord because of His righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. We live in a jaded society. Very little really surprises us or excites us. But you turn to the Scriptures and you hear it time and time again. How the saints are excited about their God. About His name. About His sparkling reputation. The scriptures tell us, as the catechism says, about his almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. And you have a sense that the catechism could keep right on going. And beloved, as a result of all of this, it shouldn't surprise us that this is now where the Lord Jesus begins when he teaches his disciples and his church to pray. The first great need of prayer is the need to know this wondrous God. It's about who he is and about all he does. The Lord Jesus wants his followers to have some awareness, even if it is only the beginning of how great and majestic is their God. He wants little people to think great things. And he wants us to realize that all of these names in Scripture add to that one great name. And that name and that awesome reputation is what should fill us and thrill us every day. But then, beloved, there's also more at stake here. For not only does the Lord Jesus Christ want us to know about the greatness of the Father's name, 
He also wants us to realize that as his children, we share in his name. You may wonder, just how does that work? Well, it goes back to covenant theology. Already in the Old Testament, our God entered into covenant with mankind. He chose Abraham as his covenantal partner, and you can read about it. That's in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And together, God and Abraham entered into a great relationship based on a solemn agreement. And in that agreement, you have promises and obligations, you have blessings and curses, and you have stipulations and mandates. All kinds of elements. And in it, God claims Abraham and his seed. And in it, Abraham commits himself and his life to God and to his service. In other words, you can say a holy partnership is fashioned. Yes, and to mark that partnership, that covenant, a sign and seal are used. Abraham is circumcised as are all of his offspring, and later on in the New Testament, the covenantal sign and seal is changed. Circumcision gives way to baptism. Blood shedding gives way to water sprinkling or immersion. And something else happens along with this. For along with this, our names get changed. We are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? That means that we get to share in the the name of the triune God. That's Scripture's way of telling us we are now part of the family of God. That we are now part of that divine family name. In short, it's all about identification. God identifies Himself with us, and we identify ourselves with Him. There is this new bond between us. We're united to one another. Yes, and no matter what you may think of all of this, one thing should stand out, and that is that the wonder of it all, the sheer wonder of it all, the very idea that we sinful, frail, little human beings should be claimed by God. Isn't that miraculous? The fact that we, in one way or another, bear his great name defies imagination. What's an honor? What's a privilege? What's a promotion? But also, what a challenge. For once you bear the name, you have a duty and a calling to live up to that name. If you happen to be a prince or a princess, you need to live up to that name. You need to live a life that is worthy of that name and that status. And you know, the same goes for all believers. Once you bear the name of God, you need to live a life that is in step with that name and with that status. 
And that has implications for us. Indeed, it has enormous implications. Since I bear the name of God, I need to conduct myself as a child of God. My personal life should reflect what I have become. How I speak and think and act should jive with my new name. And what I do with my time and my money and my talents and my life and my body. It's all determined by my new status. To make it even more concrete, think of your work. The children of this world and the children of God function differently. The children of the world are concerned with questions such as, what does the job pay me? How quickly can I get it done? When will it be Friday and payday? Is the boss watching me or not? What's in it for me? Maximum pay for minimum effort. The children of God, on the other hand, they also have concerns about pay and about the boss and the nature of the work. However, there is something else that surely overrides all of this. And what is it? Well, it's the question, how can I do this job in such a way that my God is honored? And that my God is praised through my humble efforts and labors? In other words, how do I do justice to the new name that I bear? How do I lift up the name of my Savior and my God? That's the challenge that the children of God recognize and strive to meet. And you know that goes not just for your work. It goes for everything we do. Many people know how to build a house. But to build a house in such a way that God is praised is something else. Many people can run a company, but to operate it in a manner that reflects that they are a child of God. That's another story. Many people are into relationships, but to maintain those relationships so that God is praised through them. That represents something else. And yet, beloved, that's what the Christian life is all about, isn't it? The Apostle Paul says that we were bought with a price. And that as a result, we are to praise God through our bodies. In other words, in all that we do, we are to praise God. The term with our bodies, you can say, means the same as with our entire lives. 
We are to be walking billboards for Him and for the glory of His great name. Now that's quite the challenge and a real calling. And indeed it's so much of a challenge that we all need all of the help that we can get and that means especially divine help, help from above. And how does one bring down divine help from above? We are to pray it down. That's the only way. The only God-ordained way. Yes, and that is now what the Lord Jesus teaches us to do in this first petition. To pray, hallowed be your name, is first about knowing God, esteeming Him, and all His works. But it's also about asking Him for the power and the ability to really know Him and really esteem Him. For I remind you, this is not do-it-yourself work. This is divine work, supernatural work. And that's why the Catechism pleads, grant us also that we may so direct our whole life, our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us but always honored and praised. Beloved, we need God to help us to meet the challenge of honoring and praising Him. And yet even then, we often fall short. And what about this world in which we live? The Catechism uses a word which describes what the world does to God's name, and it's the word blasphemy. I think blasphemy is just about the most terrible name or word in the entire Bible, in the entire Christian vocabulary. And yet, even though it's terrible, it happens every day. And then we're not simply talking about bad language. No, we're talking about every life that ignores God and shuts Him out. We're talking about every life that violates His law. We're talking about every life that does not conform itself to His will. For all those lives represent blasphemous lives. Why, even our so-called Christian lives often fall short of the mark and end up adding to the blasphemy. So what will become of God's name in the end? Will it ever receive its proper place and do? Or is it simply destined for more ridicule and mockery and ultimately even for extinction itself? No, beloved. 
The very same person who teaches us to pray this first petition also ensures that in the end the name of God will triumph. Interestingly, in John 12, the Lord Jesus tells His disciples why He must die. And there He likens Himself to a kernel of wheat that must fall into the ground and die. And that only after it dies does it produce a harvest. And so the Lord Jesus sees His death as a great necessity. But He also sees it as something else. He sees it as something through which the Father's name is ultimately going to be glorified. After speaking about all of this, all of this seed business and all of this dying, He says, Father, glorify Your name. And what does the Father say on the basis of the prayer of His Son? I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. What does all of that mean? It means that ultimately the hallowing of God's name doesn't depend on us or on mankind. It depends on Christ. His life of perfect obedience, sacrifice, and death results in the name of God being glorified. His entire life honors the Father. And His entire life also pays for the sins and misdeeds of His people. Your failures and my failures when it comes to the hallowing of God's name are covered by His spotless redeeming work. In the end, He will see to it that our lives add to God's praise. Yes, and in the end He will see to it that all of mankind and all of creation will add to the praise as well. Think of Psalm 98. Did you catch that this morning? How that that psalm simply reverberates with the praise of God and it begins with God's people and it goes to the nations and it extends to all creation and after a while everything is shock rocking and rolling and singing and making music to God. That's where everything is hidden. That's what Scripture says over and over again in many different ways. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ultimately, God's name will be glorified. We pray, hallowed be your name with a conviction that one day it's going to be hallowed perfectly and eternally. And in the meantime, it's our calling to strive to honor it everywhere 
and in everything. And beloved, when you make that your aim, when your aim is really to hallow God's name everywhere and in spite of everything, surprising things do happen. Go back to California and those meetings that I told you about a little while ago. I'm sure you're wondering, how do they turn out? What did God do when a bunch of reluctant committee members gathered together, put aside their personal feelings, and sought to honor Him? He provided a breakthrough. He showed the way. He removed obstacles, and the negotiations are back on track. And that shows you, wonderful things happen when we as God's people concentrate on the hallowing of His great and wondrous name. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.